Hello and welcome to Moves and Tea. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. Tonight, we continue our look at the work of Hiro Murasaki by looking at the second film in this filmography. And if you were thinking that this is the film which uh, started Pseudo Ghibli, you would be wrong, because we're talking about that next week when we talk about the Peter Castle in the Sky, which was released two years after this one. Now, this is, uh, in fact, an anime based on the manga of um, of the same name. This is uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, not Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, as I constantly call it. It is actually Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which was released in 1984. Four, and probably one of the final Ghibli movies I personally saw myself because I'm kind of an animation snob. But what about yourself, Kim? You mean like when I saw the movie? I mean, I saw the movie a long time ago. Oh, really? <laughs> but, so. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I always say that, you know, when you like Studio Ghibli or you grew up with Studio Ghibli, a lot of times what is your favorite movie is very in correlation with the age of when you're born. Mm. <laughs> Obviously, that doesn't apply to, you know, the younger generation who's discovering this stuff. But Nausicaa is is mostly, like, my cousins that really liked it, like, who were a few years older than me. Yeah. Um, when they were, and, and they would really appreciate this because that was around the time that it became popular for them. So that's how I watched it. But I never, you know, when I was a kid, it was never top of the, you know, like, it wasn't the one that I remembered the most. Um, a lot of times, and it was it wasn't until I got older, and then I started going back to these movies that I started really appreciating this movie for what it is, because there are some really deep messages um, that that you know about environmentalism and and um, and just war and, uh, and you know that sort of thing, and anti-war basically that comes into play. That I guess like when you're younger, you don't really grasp as what as much. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly again a, a, um, a film which again introduces another of uh, Murasaki's key films, as in environmental issues, which will appear time and time again um, in his work, in particular the clash between industry and the environment, as uh, we see here with a world. It's set thousands of years after a post-apocalyptic event, uh, which has seen the world essentially split out into tribes, with a vast toxic jungle spewing out hordes and hordes of giant insects that um, humanity are battling against, while a young girl, Nausicaa, believes that they may actually be the hold the secret to the survival of the human race. Um... Now, with the as I said, this one's released in 1984, so the animation's not obviously as polished as some of the later ones. I mean, certainly even when we compare this one to Castle in the Sky, it's quite a big jump, even though it's obviously two years difference between the two films. Um, and as I said, it's one of the reasons I never really watched this one. I think I watched this one last, because the first time I saw it, I just couldn't get on with the animation style, and then... Like years and years later, I decided to stop being such a snob with animation and decided to actually sit down and watch it and had a really good time with it. So I was very keen to revisit it now with yourself, Kim, to uh, obviously see uh, see what you made of it as well. So, But um, what is it really that appeals to you about Nausicaa, really? I mean, obviously she's the... Uh, 
first of a long line of kick-ass female heroes within um, the works of Ghibli, uh, not to mention in Murasaki's works, though, because he does like a feisty female. <laughs> well, obviously, Nausicaa is is a draw is a draw point because she's really she has a really well established character in in just the fact of you know like she's a really kind type of person she really sees the big picture and she's not really she's not only thinking about saving her own her own tribe in the valley of the wind but at the same time she's thinking about bigger things where that could affect the entire world how to you know get rid of these poisonous spores and this poisonous forest and the basically the entire toxic jungle like what is what's what's the what's the reason behind this toxicity that's going on and she's going through these different like experiments and stuff like that but at the same time you know it's hard to really you hate on this because at the same time you're looking at this i think it's like a movie where you've never liked insects that much (laughs) in your (laughs) life (laughs) And, uh, and it's just these insects are all so different. There's so much detail in them, right down to the plants that they have, like, with these spores that are going around. And, and it kind of reminds you of, like, the sometimes in nature, the most beautiful things are the most toxic. <laughs> well, when it came to see the inspiration for, for the character and... Um, the story of Nausicaa. Uh, one of the first ones was obviously which he drew from was Homer's The Odyssey, um, in which the the character Nausicaa appears and she's described as this fleet-footed, fanciful, beautiful girl who sings with a harp. And when Odysseus is shipwrecked uh, on this island, she's the one who treats his wounds, even though he's like really bloodied up, and she becomes really quite enamoured with him and. Her joyful spirit and her singing allows it really sort of like makes a one with nature and if she actually becomes like one of the first sort of like female traveling minstrels as she sort of sings about his uh, his odyssey and his journey and she goes from like court to court. The other one and slightly more out of left field was the the manga uh, called Ralph, which is by an American cartoonist called Richard Corbin, um, which. According to the uh, Ghibli Wikipedia, it's about this princess who carries the fate of a small country, and at the same time, it's saying like a very sort of medieval world. Uh, this uh, kingdom of Kansland, where Ralph is this humanoid dog who is, according to, as I say, according to Wikipedia, extremely devoted to his large-breasted mistress Mariana and hostile towards the suitor Raymond. Um, and it was like originally proposed to get the copyrights to Ralph and to turn it into an anime um, comparing it very closely to the likes of Ralph Bakshi's Wizards in terms of like style and context which I think would have been a really interesting film but I don't think we perhaps would have had the season if he had gone down that route and instead decided to go his own route with uh, the Nausicaa material writing first um, a manga treatment and then later t- adapting his own work into the anime we're obviously discussing this evening I don't know if you've seen any of the films of Bakshi at all no okay 
I often um, can say that he's like the third great animation star when it comes to American animation. You obviously got Disney, who are all sort of like cute and about mm-hmm. things they can make money of. Then you got Don Bluth, who's kind of like got the more darker edge, and he's got like snarling, drooling villains yeah, yeah, and yeah. did things like Five Goes West. And then you've got Bakshi, who is just completely out of out of uh, left field in his own element. Who did things like Wizard? He did. The original animated Lord of the Rings movies, which okay. uh, used rotoscoping, and is legendary uncomplete because it finishes partway through the two towers rather than giving us the whole thing. Okay. So we have the um, the Battle of Helm's Deep, and you see Gandalf runs down with like the uh, the army behind him, and he flings the sword at the screen, and then it just ends. <laughs> it's like great. <laughs> it's more frustrating than. Um, Takashi Miike's As the Gods Will, which also ends on that cliffhanger, and it's never going to apparently be resolved. But this one, I mean, obviously it hits the ground running. It really establishes its world really on. I mean, this is a world which is essentially all desert apart from this toxic forest, which is essentially in the middle, but obviously all the insects are coming from there. And Nausicaa, who's this uh, feisty little spitfire of a, a character, um, is somehow able to communicate with the insect hordes in particular the giant trilobite om which um move through this landscape like buffalo and we see right right from the start they're just uh when they go ramp go rampage in the rise turn red which is kind of creepy as we said originally i mean she believes that there's something in in this jungle that different tribes are obviously trying to destroy because they think that the insects are this big threat but she's like no we, the jungle obviously holds the key to our survival here at the same time i mean nautica's tribe they're, they're kind of like the country folk really when you look at it they're all there with like their windmills and they live this quiet little life and then you've obviously got the military straight of uh Tomeka, who uh as part of their larger plot, they're trying to unleash a giant, um, giant god weapon that uh, we're led to believe was responsible for humanity being crushed in the first place in this event that they refer to as the uh, Seven Days of Fire. Um, what did you? What's your sort of feelings on this sort of like setup for how we ended up in this situation? Because over the years, we've seen many, many ways that humanity can screw things up and end up in these post-apocalyptic situations. And, you know, war, global events, and in this one, giant robots. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of anything that's too... I think that's that's the one thing why I don't watch Nausicaa as much as I normally would. Is It's, you know, essentially it's it's, it's people who are trying to bring to life this giant warrior who's for for their own benefit basically right yeah they have their own beliefs that that to take over the world or whatever they're trying to do or to destroy the toxic jungle is the way to go or or whatever it so they're trying to create this imbalance by using this type of humanoid bioweapon and and these people are like, you know, you can really see that this group of people have these very compromised morals in what they're trying to do. And it's very clear that that it's opposite to what Nausicaa is trying to to create um, for for her people, obviously, because these people are, you know, they 
they come in guns a blazing literally and then they they're like oh you know we're not here to do anything but you know but you know what we're gonna do we're gonna go kill your dad right away you know? yeah yeah <laughs> that's always gonna upset people it's <laughs> when you do that sort of thing <laughs> we don't mean to offend you but we're just gonna kill your king you know so that so it was it's kind of like very conflicting character but at the same time like these characters come in and you really can see um you really can see like what the type of person they are even if even if like later on um you start realizing that uh, i forgot the is it Pr- princess kushana is is um is the one who leads this whole tomikia um military and what happens is, you know, eventually we realize that she has been affected by the toxic jungle. And basically, it's kind of her way to revenge the jungle type of thing. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of, like, little things like that happening where the world is going through this imbalance, but they're trying to, you know, as someone's trying to cure it, someone's trying to make it worse type of thing. It's true, and they they put all this emphasis on this this giant god warrior that's going to be like this the turning point in this uh, their plans, and it turns up fires about three laser beams, which are true, very impressive, and then it just dies, which I had to yeah, say was like it, kind it of anticlimactic. Melty thing before it's ready, you know. Because they they build it up, it's sort of like going to be this be this epic weapon. And you think, oh my god, how the hell are they going to stop it? Basically, all they have to do is just wait it out. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did like the um, the design of the god weapon. Because we obviously have in the, I think it's the opening credits, we get the, the hint at the, the seven days of fire. And you see these like giant robots like like figures hawking across the landscape they're very similar to the robot sentries that we're seeing in castle in the sky not to get too far ahead of ourselves mm-hmm. um which i found the other day you can actually get like um a model to go on your desk of oh okay. but it's it's such a big thing it's it's more bigger than the um the tyrant figure from the virus toy line <laughs> uh which i still want even though it's like a huge paperweight or a thing and it probably won't fit on the shelf. There's something about that toy that I still really like. I mean when it came if it came to like um like Ghibli figurines, is there a particular figurine that you would like of the Ghibli world? <laughs> well, Totoro. You just want Totoro. <laughs> wow, what a surprise that is. Well, what a surprise, right? No, no, no. I, I to be fair, I if I if it was one, I would actually want one of like Kiki with the cat, with her cat, you know, like that, okay. that's one that I would, that, that would, that's another one that I would really, really like. Like Kiki on her bike with her cat, you know, <laughs> really, or on her, uh, on her broom with her cat or something, you know, like something like that. Yeah, nice. That's a good choice. Now I'm like completely stumped to what I would want myself. I don't know, probably maybe the Radish Spirit from Spirit Away. Or like the, or like I, I've never seen Princess Mononoke, but that's you know down the, down the, down the way we'll be watching that. But I mean, I've always thought that Princess Mononoke with her on the wolves, yeah, are really, really like that would be a really nice figurine to have. Also, she has a really cool design, especially with the mask. Um, yeah, I think that she's she's really, really, really cool, and I think certainly that 
that world there's a lot of really interesting sort of character design and i think this is this is again with nausicaa it's very much like a almost like a tesseron still because it was with the obviously with lupin the third that's a monkey punch property so you're sort of tied slightly to to keeping maintaining the vision even though as we mentioned on the previous episode there was tweaks made here with Norsuke, i mean it's his own property so he was able free to adapt it and certainly the anime is a lot different than the manga um, I mean, we could do a whole episode just on the manga alone. There's that many sort of differences. So even if you've seen like Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, then definitely go and check out the manga as well because it's two completely uh, different stories essentially. So uh, you can still enjoy the both. Um, certainly, I would say that the anime is it design. It it's been tweaked obviously to take advantage of all the things you can obviously do with animation so it's got a lot more sort of action beats to it and same when it comes to the action beats the uh, that those are where i think those are the moments that the film really sort of shines in this one because we have like these really sort of hectic sort of battle sequences especially like on the plane where you've got like one crowd pushing against another there's some really interesting stuff there and the fact that everything's got this medieval edge to it so no one really has guns, they'll have swords and knives and things. I think it's kind of interesting when you juxtapose it against this almost steampunk world where despite the fact that uh, nobody's got much modern things, we all apparently have uh, planes. Planes are apparently the one thing that managed to survive this po- the post-apocalypse, so... <laughs> flying things in general yeah flying things <laughs> and there's some really nice flying sequences in there even though the science of how gravity and thrust and pull work is completely out the window here there's so many scenes like when you see like Nausicaa go from like one vehicle to the next it's like no that wouldn't happen <laughs> For sure. I mean, how she like goes on her thing and then all of a sudden it flies a certain way and then she flips over and this jumps on her little flying machine type of thing. It's like when there's a shot at the end where you've got her launching small children off on gliders in across this crevasse and I'm thinking, my God, those children are just going to fall off. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's weird how I was so strangely concerned about that. It's like, how are they holding on? Is it just like sheer force of will? The fact that you're being thrown out into the abyss by some crazy princess who talks to bugs? <laughs> that you just like, you just will yourself to hold on, like going down a zip line. That was my weird takeaway from, from the film tonight, I have to say. That's my weird parental concern. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it it is legit, but I mean, like, there is a lot of these weird things that happen. I feel like when you when you think about, like, future Ghibli movies that we're going to get into, uh, or just Miyazaki movies in general, the there are some interesting saving, like, kids endangered, and then they have to go through these weird sequences where they need to be saved type of thing. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Well, when the film was originally uh, was originally picked up, it was released in the states under Roger Corman's New World Pictures, and he edited it into a film called Warriors of the Wind, which essentially cut out twenty five minutes of footage from the film and tried to focus somehow on the male characters of the film. And this greatly upset Miyazaki to the point that when he was approached by Harvey Weinstein about distributing Princess Mononoke, suggesting that he was going to be making cuts to the film, as Weinstein often did. 
Um, Miyazaki responded by sending him a katana with a note attached, stating, No cuts. And when later questioned about the incident, Miyazaki simply smiled and stated, I defeated him. And this is the no cuts policy really continues today, as we said in our last episode, with Disney handling the distribution and even where especially when you like compare like this version to the version that Corman put out, it becomes all the more clear why he's so insistent on nobody messing with his projects. Um, apparently he's fine with them putting like the happy celebrity voices on, but you can't uh, you can't edit a Ghibli movie. Um, Let's talk a bit about the voice casting Because obviously they're always a big selling point Of these movies is food they get in And uh, did you watch the dub Or did you watch the sub of this one I watched the the dub version It's really frustrating When you try to watch this with the subtitles Because the subs are still in For the Japanese version So they're completely different They don't don't match at all I actually had the uh, subtitles on but I was listening. To, I was watching it in English. <laughs> it's so frustrating. I was like, because because um, my wife was uh, watching whatever, and I thought, oh, I can just watch it in the background and some something. It's like, nope, that's just even more confusing. <laughs> um, but Alison Lohman voices Nausicaa here, who is probably one of the few voice uh, voice actors who doesn't really sort of. Uh, Stand out. I mean, she did things like Beowulf and things we lost in the fire. She was uh, also in Drag Me to Hell. Alison Loma was also. Um, I think I haven't seen that much of her, but I believe she was in White Oleander. Yes, she was. So she is uh, the least to a celebrity of the cast. But I mean, the cast also includes uh, Patrick Stewart as Lord Jupiter, uh, Shia LaBeouf as Aisbo, and Uma Thurman as uh, Kushana. We also get uh, James Amazon, uh, Edward James Omenos, um, as well as uh, Frank Welker, which is always exciting when you see Frank Welker, because Frank Welker is the voice of Optimus Prime. <laughs> um, and apparently also the third highest, third, uh, highest grossing voice actor of all time, according to Wikipedia. Um, someone I didn't notice was in doing voice acting here until this time is uh, Mark Hamill, who uh, voices the mayor. Yeah, me too. I can't. <laughs> that was that was kind of surprising to me. Yeah, I can't like listen to it. And it's like that's Mark Hamill, is it? Cause I didn't have access to my phone at the time to check it, and it's just like you keep hearing these bursts, and you're like trying to latch it on because I thought the the Gibby project he did was Castle in the Sky. I didn't realize he was on this one as well. So he really started his voice uh, acting career a lot earlier than everyone expects because we sort of assume that. He did nothing until he did the Joker in Batman the Animated Series and then suddenly became a massive voice actor. But no, he was obviously doing stuff before then. It's also really nice because this is, I think, the first collaboration where um, this is kind of like the start of the collaboration of Miyazaki with Joey Saishi, which creates a really nice soundtrack. And I think really one of the standout points of this film is the soundtrack itself. Um there's, you know, I, I, I really like how, you know, it creates this really lovely type of, you know, like eerie at times, but also, you know, it has that catches that fantastical post-apocalyptic type of world. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like something as simple as just inserting a lullaby in that you hear 
becomes very, very, it's very like brainwashy type of style of music <laughs> that, that I, I think, I think it really helps the, the movie stand out. And I mean, like, it, it's really great because obviously Joe Hisaishi was going to be someone who creates, who collaborates with Miyazaki, I mean, primarily for most of the studio, like his studio Ghibli movies. It's very true. Um, and this sound design, this one is, is particularly good. Um, so when you hear like the arm, that uh, skittering sort of sound. Yeah. Uh, that's always kind of creepy. But yeah, it's it really sort of switches between the ominous to the fantastical. We get a little bit of a sweeping score as well during the more humanistic moments, certainly, which is also nice as well. But I don't even think about like the scores in Ghibli movies for some reason. So I really need to start paying more attention to them. Oh, that's surprising though, because I I've always been really really captured by the scores of his movies because I think they really bring it to life. I'm not saying, like, he's not, you know, like, Miyazaki is not great in his writing or his directing because he does create really, really beautiful stories. But a lot of it is, I feel, contributed by having this, you know, really great composer who 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 is able to capture that vibe and his vision really well. I think maybe it's because the scores aren't as intrusive as other composers yeah. they're sort of like they're in the background and they're, they're adding to the mood and and moment um yeah. whereas other like like look at Miracomi or um or like danny elfman and it's sort of like these big lambasted scores who are just like forcing their way into your your consciousness <laughs> so like yes you will feel this way about this <laughs> so yeah it's 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 not a it's not a tarantino movie type of score no. <laughs> Yeah, Tarantino really loves to crank up the volume on his soundtracks, doesn't he? So, I'm not saying like it's not it's not a dig on him having a bad soundtrack. As a lot of Tarantino movies, the soundtrack is might be one of the big standouts. So, but uh, but no, I mean it's uh, it's one of the things that I really really love about about Miyazaki movies. I just like the little like I feel like Miyazaki is one of those people who are perfectionists. Where everything he does, right down to the little minuscule detail, is going to be something that he planned and he wanted. And he's going to make sure that these things are all going to contribute to the film as a whole, whether you appreciate it or not, right? Oh yeah, I definitely feel that Mozaki is a is unquestionably a perfectionist when it comes to... Uh, comes to his works. I mean, obviously, the only other director I can think of who's so like precise in his work would be uh, Kachiro Otomoto. Uh, Otomoto, who obviously directed like Steam Boy and Akira, who went and in, in checked for every individual cell of animation in in uh, Akira, especially. And I think Mozaki is very precise in his work. I mean, there's obviously the tales of him, like, when you look at Key's Livy Service, where he spent the day at the park watching the wind blow women's skirts up just so he could get the right um, flow of the animation when we see, we see <laughs> Kiki on a balloon. Of course he did. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think this is also, like, proven... This sort of, like, dedication to his work has also led to him having this sort of very disassociated relationship with his own son, who's He's not afraid to be critical of his uh, son's work as well. I mean, certainly when um, his son directed Tales from 
FC. Um, this is a documentary that shows him going to to watch it and then walking out after like the first twenty minutes, criticizing that <laughs> his son should not make his work so personal. <laughs> Coming from the man who later on will going to watch The Wind Rises, which is completely a passion project. Oh that's, yeah, that's a yeah. Yeah, for man who just like loves to work flying machines in, let's just make a film completely about a a plane design, just so I can cram as much uh, flying machines in as possible. But he's also, I mean, how many times has he retired now? I think he's, <laughs> I think he's going to be like Run Run Shaw and just forget to retire. Because I mean, Run Run Shaw was like 107 and still working, so. Because um, he's like, you know, every time he says, oh, like, this is going to be my last film, and then he'll like go away for like a little bit, and then they come back and make something else, and then say, oh, no, this is my last film. This is definitely it, and then he comes back again, so. That's how we have these big gaps, I guess. I mean, I I only remember the wind rises being yeah. his his actual you know retirement thing, and then now we have something that's in the works already, right? That's supposed to come out soon. It so. also helps the fact it being an animated film. She kind of expect this to be a gap because you know an- animation takes a while to do. So yeah, but um, yeah, I think Nozick definitely deserves. It's definitely worth checking out. I mean, obviously doesn't have the fantastical whims so much of like the later films and it's almost like this one he's still trying to find his style I mean we're seeing like some of the elements uh, being introduced there again it's like slowly introducing his themes and I think by the time we got into Castle in the Sky I think is when they really all come together in that one uh, that one place for the first time but you know I think would you say Nausicaa is more in tune with like the Ghibli style than uh, we saw with Lupin the Fed in the Castle Caglio show. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, this this one this one has a lot more you know fantastical elements, which is which is something that you know Miyazaki is very known for because he creates these fantastical worlds that don't actually you know like they they're kind of like a parallel to reality in most cases. Where in this one. There is that fantastical element, and but the reality is, you know, the future. It's it's years and years in the future in a post-apocalyptic world. It's very true. Um, I mean, I... But I mean, but you know, at the same time, I, I, I like the fact that this movie is very grounded in that reality. Because, I mean, if not, it probably wouldn't have been, you know, like, I, this is the first time I noticed it, too, was that it actually was recommended by the, the WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature. I was, I was, I never, I had never known that this film was, was, was actually recommended. I didn't even, I didn't even know the organization recommended movies. <laughs> I did, yeah, I didn't, because it's hard to make out. I thought, because no one bothered to translate that opening card. So I wasn't sure if he, he made it with them or or what the deal was. I didn't realize they recognize, recommended it. Yeah. But, um, no, I do, again, I don't think they've had any other interesting films outside of this. I mean, certainly weren't attached to Fern Gully in any way. <laughs> No, I think the only other time they've ever been involved in social media is when they got into that big suing match with uh, with the world uh, with the former WWF, um, which then became the WWE. So, because I guess they got tired of everyone confusing the two. <laughs> um, 
But uh, yeah, I would kind of like to see as I do another post-apocalyptic movie. Just maybe do. I don't know whether it's something like the Norseka world or do do another uh, character entirely. But I'd be kind of interested to see him do this because a lot of, as I said, all of his works you do now are very sort of uh, more fantasy based. Mm. Um, so it'd be kind of nice to see him like go back and like do do like another post-apocalyptic one and see what what uh, what he would do now. Obviously, as a elder animation statesman. I wonder. I wonder if it's just because it's not something that truly captures him, right? Because I'm not sure it's the post-apocalyptic element that draws him to this story more than the fact that the post-apocalyptic brings up that anti-war pacifist personality that you know that he the that he believes in. So it's yeah. I'm just no no idea. It's just. Everything that uh, sort of comes after it so is a fantasy basis, and it certainly often has the environmental basis to it as well. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah. Um, for myself, I'd say look past the animation. I mean, it was released in 1984, so the animation does look a little dated, even if they do clean it up. Uh, but I mean, once you get past it, it's a very sort of rich world and vibrant world. It's uh, told within, and I think it's. One that uh, definitely deserves to, rec- deserves to be recognized as one of his better works. So. Absolutely, I agree with you. I didn't have pro- I didn't have an issue with the animation. Okay. It definitely does look more dated for yeah. sure. But I think that if you're going into a 1980s type of animation, it should be expected. It's, it's so. so hard with animation to to know if, to, to know it, because it always varies from like animator to animator. I mean, obviously we look at Five Goes West, the Five movies, which are also released around this time. Mm-hmm. Um, look at Disney movies released around this time. We look at um, action movies released around this time. Everyone's got a different animation style, so... Um, I mean, certainly in terms of like anime, I mean, it's, it's it's very sort of similar to the sort of style of this time. So, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's definitely don't be an art snob like me. Just watch it. <laughs> um, something since the end of tonight's episode. Thank you as always for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show, as it uh, also also helps raise the profile of the show. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Come say hi to us there. And you can check out our full archive episodes on our blog, which is moosandteapodcast.wordpress.com, where every Friday, myself and Kim both pick a film for our Friday Film Club to sometimes the theme sometimes it's not but it's a chance for us to talk about more of the movies that we love uh but kim where are we going to next yeah we're going to castle in the sky which is released in 1986 aka the year that i was born <laughs> nice so obviously cats in the sky uh, coming up next a fantastical tale about flying castles Sky machines, sky pirates, giant robots, and military forces. Um, that's going to be an exciting and a fun one to, to go and check out for sure. But um, mm-hmm. until next time, thank you again for listening. Thanks to my co-host Kim. And we'll be back next time to talk about Castle in the Sky. Until then, good night. Mm-hmm.